Shall we pray before we read God's word? We wait for you, Lord. Our whole being waits. And in your word, we put our hope. We wait for you, Lord, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Amen. The readings from Habakkuk chapter 1. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. The Lord's answer, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if it, you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horses come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings. They scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. By building earthen ramps, they capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. Acts chapter 13. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification that you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wander and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further on these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout followers, devout converts to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to start looking through this book of Habakkuk. And before we do that, this sermon is going to be a bit different. It's really going to be an introduction to the whole verse 
uh, for the whole, to the whole verse. It actually kind of is an introduction to one verse, to be honest. I couldn't, the most I could preach this week was just one verse. Um, it's going to be an introduction to the book and really an exposition of the very first verse of the book. Um, because that first v- uh, verse, like so often happens with the prophets, is a summary uh, a kind of description of what the whole book is all about. And so I think you'll see why when we get into some of the details of Habakkuk, why I think stepping back for a moment and asking this broader question about what God is trying to do in and through a book like this uh, might be helpful. Um, the Bible is oftentimes experienced as a difficult book. Uh, there's so many ways we could talk about why that is, but one of the, one of the clearest examples of, if, if that feels impious to you, you know, to say the Bible is a diff- difficult book, um, don't ever lead like a home group or a Bible study. Because if you've ever led a home group or a Bible study and you have any kind of emotional awareness at all, you will find yourself before the group looking at this text and thinking, oh no, what is this person in my group going to think? You know, oh no, we've come to a verse. This person's partner isn't a Christian. How are they going to feel about this passage? Or, oh no, we've, co- we've come to a verse and there's, there's, there's something that I know because of this thing in their life. There's this act of violence in the Bible or this confusing thing in the Bible or something that seems judgmental. And I know this is going to be hard for that person. The, the Bible oftentimes is experienced as difficult. It is full of people committing the worst sort of acts that humans can perform. It's full of violence and injustice and oppression and worse. It's full of things that are confusing and that are strange. It's full of things that are very, very contextual, that don't make sense in our, in our present day. It's full of laws that seem out of touch with reality. It's full of blood and, and, and organs and all sorts of strange things. The Bible is difficult. But so let's, 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 let's imagine something for a moment. Let's, let's undertake a slightly blasphemous thought experiment. That will be fun on Sunday at a church, right? Slightly blasphemous thought experience. Do you ever do this slightly blasphemous thing and think about how the world would look different if you were God? It would look, I, if I was God, okay, The world would look very different, and I will tell you the truth, some of you would not like it because there would be no football stadiums at all. They would be replaced by quirky bookshops, okay? There would be all sorts of things, I'm sure, that if you were God, that would would be very different. But let's think about if you were God and you were going to give humanity one book, one book to guide its journey through the difficulty, uncertainty, and sorrow of life. Would that book look like the Bible? Mine would not. Uh, here's three ways where uh, my, my book would be different from the Bible. I've thought about this, okay? Blasphemy continuing. Um, one, my holy book, we can call it the sacred text of Jaredology, um, would be more clear and less ambiguous. A lot of bits of the Bible are very, very hard to make sense of. If God is going to give us one book to make sense of life, why not make the meaning more obvious? Similarly, it would have less narrative, less stories, and strange genres like visions and apocalypses. It wouldn't be like Revelation where there's beasts climbing, climbing out of flaming lakes. 
um, it would be more straightforward didactic teaching. It would say this is the truth about who you are, about who God is, about what life should be like, and this is what you should do. This is the way to live. It wouldn't have all these strange stories where the meaning isn't clear. And it would be timeless, not contextual. So much of the Bible is God coming to very particular times. So much of the Old Testament, for example, is God coming and speaking into a very particular context in a way that doesn't obviously apply to our life today. If I was going to give humanity one book, it would be full of timeless truths that applied to everyone. Not all of this very particular stuff. So the Bible seems not only difficult, but strange. Why is this the one book that God thought we needed to have? Well, the reason I felt so confident saying these different things about how my you know, holy book would look is because I suspect that oftentimes we as Christians wish the Bible was a bit more like this. And the reason I feel so confident in saying I think we as Christians often wish the Bible was more like this, and this is going to be the most, sorry, a bit provocative or polemical maybe, is because there are countless ways in which we as Christians try to pretend the Bible is a different sort of book than it actually is. There's a lot of ways of treating the Bible, of thinking about preaching, of thinking about Bible study, which actually pretends the Bible is more like this than the interesting, unique, strange, ambiguous book God has actually given us. There was a New Testament scholar, the New Testament scholar at Aberdeen that was a part of our church for many years named Grant McCaskill, and he has a metaphor for this way of treating the Bible. He calls it fracking the text. Should I switch this, do you think? You guys waiting on pins and needles, what, what I'm gonna say now? There we go. Fracking the text. What he means by that is this, is that there are ways of preaching and teaching and thinking about Bible study which divide the Bible up into tiny little bite-sized chunks. Ignore the complexity, the narrative, the story, the way each bit, some bits only make sense in light of the whole and try to break it down into little easily digestible pieces in which all you have to do is take that little bit and either believe what it tells you to believe or do what it tells you to do. Some bits of the Bible lend themselves to that sort of analysis, but much of it, it's stories, it's visions, it's psalms and songs don't actually lend themselves to that sort of bit by bit, point by point approach. It's an attempt implicitly to say to God, you should have given us a different sort of book than you actually have. So. Here's what I want to do for the rest of the time this morning. I'm, I'm as most of you who've been here for a while, if you're new, will, if, if you're new, you don't know this. If you've been here for a while, you know this. I'm not a very good preacher, okay? And this week, I've actually done, done something that I should, I actually have points. I have three points this week, for probably the first time I've ever had points. And the reason I have three points is because I want to make an argument, three points, why the book God has actually given us is better than the book we might wish. And so we're going to do one more thought experiment this morning. This one will not be a blast thought experiment, what I would like to invite you to do is this. I want you to imagine, so in a thought experiment, you imagine if something is true so you can maybe learn something, all right? We're all going to go in a big collective thought experiment here, okay? I know it sounds like we're getting into cult-like territory, but don't worry, it won't be weird. Here's what I want you to imagine, just, just for the sake of argument. 
I want you to imagine God is smarter than you. And I want you to imagine that God cares about you and knows what you need to a greater degree than you actually know yourself and know what you need. And I want to then look at the Bible together and say, if we assume that God knows what we need better than we ever could, why would he have chosen this book as the holy text which guides us through life? And I'll give some reasons why that might be drawing on Habakkuk. The first reason God might have given us a book like this is because the Bible resists our attempts to use it for our own power games. Every single religious text can be used uh, and abused to create uh, exclusion and hierarchy. Here's what I mean. If you believe anything, and if you have any sense of morality at all, you have the potential to create a hierarchy where those who are good at following the rules are praised and valued and celebrated, and those who are bad at following the rules are excluded and condemned and rejected. Every single church, therefore, and everyone who affirms a holy book, and not just religious people, everyone who believes anything at all faces the dark temptation of using those beliefs or that vision of morality to condemn and exclude those who don't measure up. So the Bible has been used and misused in that way for centuries. However, what is so unique about this book is it actually gives the resources within itself to fight against that misuse. Habakkuk in particular has been read all down the centuries, I don't have enough time to get into these examples, as an anti-oppression um, uh, text. They deride kings and scoff at rulers, they laugh at all fortified cities, they build earthen ramps and capture them. Habakkuk is praying because his country, uh, uh, the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, is oppressed by a nation called the Assyrians. And the message he receives is basically the Assyrians down. And so all throughout history, when people are facing either political or religious oppression, they have turned to Habakkuk as a source of, of liberation. Similarly, why is it one of the most commented things on about the person of Jesus is that Jesus seems to critique the religious leaders more than he critiques the kind of sinners outside of religion? Why is it that, the, 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 that when his rhetoric gets most heated, it's against religious people. And the reason I would suggest is because not only does the Bible tell us how to live, but it also, it also spends just as much time warning us about how knowing how to live can lead us astray. Not only does the Bible tell us the difference between right and wrong, it spends just as much time warning us about how if we know what is right and wrong, we have the propensity to misuse that knowledge. That's why, for example, again, when you look at all the strangest parts of the Bible, it's often for that very reason. It's guarding against the misuse of the Bible. Why does the Bible include books like Job, where for chapter after chapter after chapter, someone wrestles with the question of, of, of why is God letting this happen to me if I've done the right things? Why does it include books like Ecclesiastes? Someone saying, why have you made it look like there's no meaning or purpose or significance to life? It's because while the Bible has books that have law and that have truth and that show us what to believe and, and how to live and says that if we follow God's way, it will lead us to life and flourishing and wholeness, it also is full of books of people saying, but I'm trying that. I'm trying to follow God's way 
and look at where it's got me. The Bible includes so much ambiguity, so much uncertainty, and so many books that aren't just straightforward telling you what to do or how to live, because within itself, it's guarding against our propensity to misuse it. The first verse of Habakkuk, which is really what I've said this whole sermon is inspired by, says this. The oracle or pronouncement that Habakkuk the prophet received or saw. This is, the, as often happens in the prophets, the first verse says, defines everything that follows. And so what he's saying is everything after this is what the prophet received, what he saw. The, the, the emphasis here, as much as anywhere in scripture, is not on Habakkuk's creativity or his production. It's saying what follows in this book is divine revelation. It is God speaking to you, and you don't create it, you don't produce it, you receive it. And yet what follows? What is it that God chooses to reveal? It's a conversation. It's a dialogue. In fact, if we're honest, it's an argument. Habakkuk goes on to say, Oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? This, it's, the, the verb there is only used in the Bible in the context of arguments. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallows up those more righteous than themselves? The book of Habakkuk has two sides. It has a man coming angrily, bringing his complaints and his worries and his fears to God and God's response. But what that first verse in Habakkuk is meant to suggest is that all of it is from God, not just God's bits. What God thought his people most needed was not a set of truths to be believed. It was actually a dialogue where someone wrestled through those beliefs with God himself and did it in a way that was often unfair towards God and imperfect in the way he spoke about God. The Bible is full of things like this. Jeremiah is another similar book. Jeremiah is another prophet who is wrestling with God and wondering what he's doing. And this inspired holy text has these words. Jeremiah the prophet says, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone. What's he saying? Jeremiah is saying, I did everything right. I've done, I've done everything right, it's not my fault. So then why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? You are to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails. Why would in the one holy book that God gave to mankind, he include people who bring accusations against him, accusations that might actually be unfair? and unfounded? Why would it include people who probably don't see themselves and their responsibility rightly? This leads to the second reason why this book, this book that God has actually given us, is better than the books we might think we need. Because the Bible is about transforming real people, not merely communicating information. If in this holy text which God has inspired, he shows people coming to him, saying things that are unfair, that are untrue, making accusations that are unfounded, wrestling with things. If this is inspired scripture, then what does that say for us? Imagine the invitation. It's an invitation to come with your questions, with your doubts, with your uncertainty, 
and to likewise be transformed in meeting this God. When I think about the sort of book that the Bible is and why God might have chosen to give us this sort of book rather than what I would have, I mean, look, those of you that know me right now, it seems like I'm saying, oh, I love all these great stories and confusing things. I mean, that's not actually my personality at all. If I, I would have loved if God just gave us a theological textbook. That would make me so excited. I would love that. Some of you, like my wife, that are rule followers, you would have loved if God just gave us a nice little tidy set of rules that you could follow and say, oh, I'm a good person. But the most transformative books in history, this is as someone who loves reading academic tomes, the most transformative books in history aren't self-help guides. They're not books that tell you how to live. There are more transformative books than books that tell you how to live. They're not books that are academic tomes. They're books like like this. I don't know if anyone's read The Brothers Karamazov. The Brothers Karamazov is oftentimes seen as the most profound reflection on this issue that Habakkuk is all about. Where is God in the midst of pain, suffering, darkness, and uncertainty? And the reason it's sometimes seen as the most profound meditation on that theme is because the author is a man of faith, and yet he presents the argument against God, the objection, with more force than any atheist skeptic ever could. It reminds me of uh, a story that I read this week about a woman named Sybil Sender. Sybil was uh, an American, uh, she, she grew up in, in, in New York, in New York City. She was kind of like as close to an aristocrat as you had in America from a very upper class, wealthy, religious society. And as a young woman, she struggled with the same issue we've been talking about this morning. Where is God in the midst of pain and suffering and darkness? And she developed a, a method when she was 14 years old. She, was final, she had wrestled with this for years, and she decided, I'm going to settle this right now. On the news, she saw that there was a child that had been caught in some sort of pipe and was in life-threatening danger. And she said, God, this is the moment. If you're truly there, and if you truly care, save this child. And if you don't, I'm done with you forever. And he didn't. And so Sybil rejected the faith that she had been brought up in, and she went on a journey of discovery. She actually ended up rejecting most of the values of her family and her society. She was living in the kind of 60s counterculture era, so she lived a kind of avant-garde, bohemian lifestyle. But at some point during that journey, she struck rock bottom. I'm not, not making a, trying to make an offensive statement with this, but this is her real story. She she had at one point in her life an abortion and while she felt that there's absolutely nothing wrong with abortion there's the, she felt this was totally morally justified she found herself overwhelmed with a kind of irreplaceable sorrow for what she had lost she bottomed out ended up uh, in a in a kind of recovery hospital and a former lover a man with no religious faith himself who actually went on to be a kind of very key figure in California countercultural uh, Marxist politics, he said, do you want to know what? I've, I've just found this really rad kind of alternative living community. You should, let's go check it out. And it ended up being this Christian, uh, actually very traditional Christian intentional community. And she came along and she had this very difficult experience. This is how she described it. She was incredibly attracted to what she found in this community and also repelled. It was everything she'd been running away from her whole life. She said, the heavens and hells I lived through in the next 48 hours were as several entire lifetimes. Half my being was moved to tears. The other half scorned my reaction 
and reminded me that I was probably surrounded by mindless adults. I experienced a sort of spiritual schizophrenia. She was attracted to the love and the, 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 the acceptance that she found in this religious community, but it was everything she'd rejected. By the way, her favorite book growing up through her rejection of God was The Brothers Karamazov. That was the book she came to again and again as articulating her anger and frustration with God. But this, this, this kind of tension within her came to a head on Sunday morning. On Sunday morning, this religious community uh, had their Sunday morning worship service. And she said it was the least impressive service one could imagine, okay? Almost like Cornerstone. And um, she said they, they were wearing the same clothes they'd been wearing when they were out growing the food for this community. There was, it was in the, met in the room where they had their meals, so there was food on the ground. They just moved the tables to the side and gathered around for this very simple service. And the minister that week said, we're actually gonna do something really weird this morning. Uh, we're not gonna read the Bible this week. We're gonna read a book called The Brothers Karamazov. And in that moment, this was a kind of miraculous rev revelation to her, not only because this is the book she'd clung to her, her whole life, but because she met a community that was willing to bring their questions and their doubts and uncertainty before God. They didn't have to hide it. They didn't have to push it aside. And experiencing that community, those people, changed, changed her life. Now, after the first service, uh, Hamish said, warned me, he said, you need to make sure people know that I'm not saying that the Brothers Karamazov is just as good as the Bible, okay? I'm not, I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that the power and the potency of this book is like the power and the potency of a book like that. The Bible is the story of real people with their questions and their doubts and their uncertainty, of real people actually saying things wrong about God, and yet the whole thing is holy scripture. It is a true, perfect manifestation of God which is more helpful for broken human beings like us than a simple list of rules or truths. The final reason I think this book is better than the books we would choose for ourselves is because it involves people in their own salvation. And I think this is one of the reasons why the Bible can be confusing and contextual and ambiguous. We needed to step back, I felt, and talk a bit about what God is doing in Habakkuk because it's, it's easy to miss the forest through the trees, trees as we're going through the details. One of the most interesting things about this book is who the conversation is happening between. Okay. This is the darkest, one of the darkest moments in Israel's history. The Assyrians um, have been oppressing the people for generations. They're saying, where are you, God? What are you doing? And God doesn't reveal himself to the nation. He doesn't show up and say, let me explain myself. He doesn't give them a point-by-point -point theological treatise. What he does is he takes one man and he has a conversation with him. He listens to his searing, honest questions and doubts so that he can send him. <laughs> Habakkuk is the prophet. So that Habakkuk can be the one that goes to the people and that has this part to play in God's redeeming plan. And that's actually what the whole Bible is all about from first to last. The reason the Bible isn't full of timeless truths for all time is because it's about him coming to people where they are, in their imperfection, in their particularity, with all of their cultural issues, and him saying, "You, I'm not just going to drop salvation from on high. You are going to have, as Paul said, the ministry of reconciliation. You, Abraham, you, Israel, you, Paul, all of you are going to participate in what God is doing. If God didn't want to use us, 
then he could have given us a book of timeless truths that apply in all times and all places. But instead, God entered into people's personal lives, into their cultural lives, so that they could be a part of what he was doing. So how then do we relate to a book like this? And this is coming to the end. Those are the, th those are the three points. Those are the three reasons why um, I think this book is better than the books we would give ourselves. How then does it mean we approach a book like Habakkuk? The challenge is this morning, right now, to have the honesty to bring your question, concern, and doubt to God. To join Habakkuk in this question he asks, which says, how long? Most of us, as far as I know, aren't being oppressed by the Assyrians currently. If you are, I can't help you. Um, but most of us will have something that makes us want to scream out in the night, how long? And the challenge is, this morning, right now, can you join Habakkuk in bringing that to God? Whether it's a global issue about injustice, whether it's a very personal family issue that is incredibly close to home, can you have the courage and honesty to come before God and say, how long I can't keep going like this? The answer Habakkuk receives in this first chapter is really interesting. Habakkuk comes and says, how long will you let the Assyrians destroy and oppress your people? And God responds by saying this, look at the nations and watch, be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if I were, even if you were told. And he goes on to say that basically everything bad about the Assyrians will be replicated and done to them. In a point-by-point, point, very specific way, he takes all of the things the Assyrians were known for. The Assyrians were known for being a particularly violent people, for not respecting their enemies, for being a law unto themselves, and not respecting broader criterions of justice. God says, I'm sending another nation, named the Babylonians. And if you think this people were violent, imagine how violent they will be. If you think this people are a law to themselves, imagine a lack of concern for justice that you will find in Babylon. And in short, what God says to him as this first answer to the question of how long is he says that sin, oppression, evil sows the seeds of its own destruction. Empires constantly fall to empire because when you choose to live by the sword, you will die by the sword. When you choose a life of violence, ultimately you will pay the consequences for that life of violence with more violence. And that is part of the answer, though it is stark and frightening, that God gives to us when we cry, how long? When we look at a world full of empire and injustice, God says empire sows the seeds of its own destruction. When we look in our own much more personal lives at the way we harm one another, that is a sort of interpersonal, small-scale empire building that we do, where we're selfish, where we try to use people to get ahead, where we protect our territory and hurt those who get in our way. And the same answer is given that those choices to live the way of empire and violence sow the seeds of their own destruction. But Habakkuk, and I imagine many of you, wasn't satisfied with that answer. He said, is that all you have to say? When we cry out, how long will this violence continue? All you have to say is after this violence will come more violence. After this empire will come another empire. Is there nothing more hopeful than that? 
Well, we read another passage this morning from Acts. And in Acts, Paul gives one of the greatest sermons of all times. It's a sermon very much like this sermon where he tries to retell what the Bible is all about, doing a much better job, I might add. And in that story, he, 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 he says God chose the patriarchs and he chose this nation, Israel, and he, he rescued them from Egypt and he made them a nation so that, that they could show people uh, who God is and what his intentions for humanity were. And the culmination of this story, he says, is that he sent one who was so great that John the Baptist was unworthy. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet, the greatest Israelite of all time, John the Baptist was unworthy to tie this man's sandals. And that circle of violence and oppression and empire that we just described fell upon him. And you killed the one who was sent for your salvation. However, he quotes Habakkuk. He says, I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Because with this man, that vicious cycle of empire after empire, violence upon violence, met its bloody end in death and resurrection. God's ultimate answer to the question of how long is a name? It's the name Jesus Christ. The pattern we see in the Bible of God not just dropping truths from on high, but being willing to enter into the particularity of history to listen to our complaints, to hear our suffering, reaches a unexpected, unimaginable culmination in the man Jesus who doesn't just listen to our sorrows, but who takes them upon himself, who faces the deadly consequences of all of our propensity to empire and breaks the cycle by not responding in kind and rising from the dead. This is God's ultimate answer to the question of how long. It's the answer that we will celebrate and receive promised to us at this table. It's the answer at the heart of this glorious book we call Holy Scripture, the Bible. So as we prepare to come to this table, Hamish is going to uh, lead us in a time of lament uh, as we sing one of the Psalms. As Jared mentioned,